0: history with jackson podcast hello and welcome back to the history with jackson podcast i'm your host jackson and in today's episode i'm talking to chris burkett all about his brand new book bill clinton at the church of baseball the presidency civil religion and the national pastime in the 1990s now i was super excited to do this episode those who know me know that i love nothing more than sport history and politics when i had the opportunity to do an episode where i merge all three of those i was super excited so i hope that you guys enjoy this episode it is an awesome episode me and chris talk about some of the major baseball stories of the 1990s but some of the major political stories and scandals of bill clinton's presidency now without further ado i'll leave you with chris So, Hello and welcome back to the History of Jackson podcast. Today we're talking to historian and author Chris Burkett, all about his brand new book, Bill Clinton at the Church of Baseball, the Presidency, Civil Religion and the National Pastime in the 1990s. Now, I love baseball. As someone who spent a couple of years in the US and and Canada watching baseball teams, I'm really excited for this one. So how are you doing, Chris?
1: I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Jackson.
0: No, it's more than okay. Any chance to talk about history and sport, I will. I will take it any day of the week. But I suppose the first question I have for you, Chris, and I do this for all our guests here, what was the inspiration behind writing this book?
1: Well, the seeds of this book go back um, about 30 years. I was working as a, a news uh, producer for the BBC in uh, Washington uh, in the mid-90s, and I was deployed to go down to Baltimore to see a baseball game which involved a character called Cal Ripken Jr. We may speak about him a bit later in this uh, podcast. And he was playing his 2,131st game in a row. And this, uh, without missing a game, uh, uh, And this this particular game had become a massive event in America. Um, He was all over everywhere, all over the media. Um, And the, the event was significant because all he was doing was just turning up for work each day but nevertheless it became he became this sort of symbol of American virtue Uh, and the BBC thought it was worth doing a piece on this so I was sent down there um, to produce for BBC Breakfast which was uh, fairly new at the time uh, and for the radio so we so we went down we covered him and and when I got there I, I hadn't known in advance that Bill Clinton was going to be there and I was only told when I was on the field in the uh, in the batting practice session uh, and we were told to clear the field for the sweep because the president was coming. Anyway, Clinton came there. He didn't actually go on to the field of play at all. He didn't make a speech, but he very much became part of the event because he commentated on a couple of innings for both TV and radio. Uh, and there was a lot of coverage of his his presence there. And he went into the dressing room afterwards and, and spoke to Cal Ripkin. And I just filed this thought away um, for some time. Uh, I was in and out of Washington for the rest of the 90s. And I kind of observed the way that uh, sport and politics sort of melded so frequently, particularly in America. And I carried on covering American politics for the BBC and the Sky News for for, for many years thereafter. And the the next president, uh, George W. Bush, he was a, a baseball owner himself, uh, and the next president, uh, Barack Obama, uh, famously got rid of the, um, the the tennis court at the White House to repaint the uh, tennis court with a basketball court. So he could carry on playing basketball with his mates and um, NBA stars that dropped into the White House. So I, I, I always thought to myself, there's, there's a relationship going on there between the presidency and sport that I think deserves explanation. But it's not just a sort of performative relationship. It's also it must also have some sort of political impacts and political meaning. Um, so when, uh, about 10 years ago now, I decided to sort of step aside from the sort of run of daily journalism, which i had been doing for 30 years, uh, and move into academia, I had this si- seeds of an idea about uh, doing something about the relationship between presidency and sport uh, in America. And this was crystallized by a supervisor I had for both my master's and my PhD at King's called Uta Balbier who is now a, a professor of modern history at Oxford uh, and she introduced me to the concept of civil religion this idea that uh, a, a fusion of if you like of, of faith and patriotism of the secular symbols and rituals and practices which uh, become accepted by a nation and come to symbolize a, a nation and, be, and become to if you like, take on quasi-religious meaning, uh, take off the, take the form of a religion, although they're not a religion. And I think when you see the relationship between sport and the presidency, and particularly baseball and the presidency, and then I see you, th- you see this civil religion at work, if you like, and that's where the idea of this uh, book came from, initially in the PhD and now sort of published
0: in America uh, this month. I love hearing this from historians. How one experience that you had and one thing that you witnessed turned into a career, really, and, a, and an interest that you keep exploring. I think it's, I think it's always really nice to see that development for historians. And, and you've touched there upon that that theme of civil religion, and, and, and the tying together of politics, presidents, and, and baseball. Many listeners, whilst many listeners to this podcast are American. Many of them in English, and we were talking about this beforehand, about people assuming a level of uh, interest and knowledge of different cultural points from different countries. But some people might not be aware of just the popularity and the cultural importance that baseball has in the United States. Could you just unpack that for some of our listeners who might not be aware of that?
1: Well, Undoubtedly, in my opinion, and though historians sort of and sort of political scientists and other academics might um, discuss this or dispute this or contest this. But undoubtedly, I think baseball carries the sort of cultural baggage of uh, of America more than any other sport. That doesn't mean to say that it's the most popular sport in America, because it isn't. I mean, uh, NFL is undoubtedly most popular sport in America, NBA. Basketball is is more popular than baseball. If you talk about the eyeballs that watch it and the dollars that are spent on it, those two sports, are, uh, uh, and also the polls that say, you know, what's your favourite sport? Baseball is eclipsed by both those two and has been since the 1970s. But I think if you think of the cultural presence in the American story, baseball is unrivaled. We'll probably might talk a bit about the history of baseball and, you know, it's growing up with the urbanisation of America and how the growth of baseball in America sort of ran parallel with each other. We can talk about that at length as well. But I really just want to focus on, if if you like, its cultural presence at the moment, if you like, and certainly in the 90s. Uh, I I made a list just before we came on, Jackson. I made a list of, of phrases that come from baseball, everyday English phrases that come from baseball. And uh, I'll just I'll just quickly run through them. You know, if you get if you get brushed back by someone, that's from uh, you've get a brush back from someone. That's baseball. If you're a big hitter, that's baseball. If you're just touching base with someone, that's baseball. If you're stepping up to the plate to do something, that's baseball. If you're throwing a curveball at someone, that's baseball. If uh, something's in the ballpark, that's baseball. If it comes from left field, that's baseball. If you take a rain check, that's baseball. Uh, if it's three times you're out, uh, then that's baseball. Um, If you knock it out of the park, that's baseball. If it's a whole new ball game, that's baseball. I mean, I could just go on and on and on with all these cultural references in language. I I mean, I I don't need to go there. So there's language. There's literature. If you just think of, uh, if you think of the authors that have written about it, Don DeLillo, uh, Thomas Wolfe, Paul Auster, um, Philip Roth, all written extensively about baseball. Um, if you think of the, I mean, in my view, if you think of the three biggest cultural figures in 20th century America, I would say, and again, this is completely up for argument. I don't know what your three would be, Jackson, but my three would be Elvis, Muhammad Ali, and Babe Ruth.
0: Um,
1: you know, Elvis and Muhammad Ali, anybody, you know, under the age of 40 will probably, uh, sorry, yeah, 40 or whatever. Wouldn't know who I'm talking about Babe Ruth they might not do but an icon of American culture in the 1920s 30s and 40s that unrivaled his his fame and you know his fame was was such that he could he could more than talk to the president as an equal he could talk down to the president and often often did that just shows you how how important Babe Ruth was so I think There are all those things. Then there are phrases, say it ain't so, Joe. Um, It ain't over till it's over. These are all phrases that have come from baseball. And that's before we get into the whole business of the completely dubious, indeed artificial creation story around baseball, the fictitious 1839 first pitch, which gave baseball an American creation story, unlike football. Um, You know, clearly baseball wasn't invented in America in 1839. I mean we all you know whether it comes from cricket or rounders or whether um rounders comes from baseball as some argue. It certainly wasn't invented in 1839 in America, but of course every religion has to have a creation story. So baseball created its creation story around Abner Doubleday in 1839. Uh and it stuck with it really largely until the Second World War when historians started saying, hey guys
0: this is, this simply isn't true. It's, it's just really like such a great sport to, to watch. And some of those names that you mentioned, uh, you know, Muhammad Ali, uh, but particularly Babe Ruth is just such a, such a huge figure, as you were alluding to there, such a huge figure in American uh, culture. And even over here, we've got books. I remember sitting in primary school reading a book about some, some child who'd gone back in time and, and, and it ended up meeting Babe Ruth.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and my, certainly
0: my my mum,
1: who is 90 now, but, I mean, Babe Ruth was a massive cultural figure. She was born in the 1930s. She's, it was, Babe Ruth was a massive cultural figure uh, to her, and she's got nothing to do with America or baseball or anything has lived in Britain all her life, but uh, there there he is. He's still a cultural figure. He was a worldwide cultural figure despite the fact that he was, you know, an American
0: baseball player. It it brings brings an interesting point actually there that Babe Ruth being able to transcend America and, and go across different continents as a cultural icon. How does how does baseball then mirror American history, uh, particularly in the nineteen nineties?
1: I think if you look at the history of baseball, uh, and his, many historians have done this, you can certainly trace the history of America through the history of baseball. It became known as the national pastime initially in the mid nineteenth century when that phrase first appeared in in newspapers, and then what we see in baseball as uh, as it becomes professionalized is we see and urbanized. We see uh, an urbanized, increasingly urbanized sport, the sport taken from the rural into the urban in an increasingly urbanizing America, and we then get. Uh, America becoming consumer orientated, commercial, advertising, baseball takes up all these aspects. We see capital versus labor. We see disputes between the workers and the owners, the players and the owners reflected in America. Uh, we see the battle for uh, civil rights. Um, if you like, um, previewed by Jackie Robinson's breakthrough, breakthrough in, breaking through the color barrier in the 1940s, as a as a, a forerunner for the civil rights battles of the 1950s. So we see corruption, uh, we see heroism, we see all the aspects that um, of America uh, together, and the way that American society has perceived itself and been perceived. We see them reflected in baseball. So uh, I think, as I said before, I think you know the cultural claims of baseball uh, stand pretty good examination compared to those of other sports.
0: Thank you for for giving us that brief detail about America's relationship with baseball and how it's reflected. Because it, I think it gives us a really nice piece of context now for discussing the other main character within your book, which is Bill Clinton. Now, how how does Bill Clinton? start to utilise baseball and its image to help his own image in his election campaigns in the 1990s?
1: Well, this is where I think um, what I've done with Bill Clinton um, is quite interesting and where people who talk to me about this say, oh, I didn't know Bill Clinton was a baseball fan. Because in actual fact, he wasn't notably a baseball fan. The way that Clinton used sport was much more um was was really as a spectator was part of building his image uh as a regular guy um james Carville, one of his advisors said of him uh he eats too much he loves sport too much he talks too much and they feared that this sort of the the guy that Clinton was portraying this regular guy image sort of lacked the the gravitas to be president. So if we're talking about Clinton and sport then I think we have something here that Clinton did use in his early campaigns this idea that he was a he was a regular guy a sports fan he was the same as the ESPN watching guys in america you know you'd like to have a beer with him and sit and watch sport that was what he regularly did he'd sit at home and watch sports center in the spn and he'd watch all the live games and he'd shout he'd shout and do it he was that was the image he was trying to create the idea that he actually particularly liked baseball i i would challenge because his real love was basketball he was a, he was absolutely mad about basketball he was mad about arkansas razorbacks who he watched when he was a law professor in fayetteville and he carried on watching when he was president so he was a big college basketball fan he would played a bit of basketball at school he wasn't a natural athlete in any sense he was a bit ungainly and sort of Big to be sort of uh, a natural athlete, um, but he did play a bit of church league basketball. Incidentally, when he went to came to Britain uh, and went to Oxford, they saw his physique and decided he'd be better as a as a in the scrum at rugby. So he played second row scrum for his college uh, in the second fifteen. Um, but anyway, that's an aside. It, it was noted when he was on the campaign trail, it was in 1992 for his first election, it was noted uh, that he actually wasn't very good at interacting uh, with people about baseball by his one of his advisors, because um, the Pittsburgh Pirates were playing in the National League Championship Series during the last few days of that campaign in, uh, in October 1992. And he was on a campaign visit to uh, Pittsburgh And the fans were all talking about the previous night's game and Clinton wasn't really able to uh, sort of engage with them about the details of it. And baseball really is all about the details. I mean, as you know, yourself, Jackson, everybody loves the stats and the numbers and all that. It's all about that. And Clinton wasn't able to talk to the fans about those sort of things. And his his advisor noted uh, that he was never much of a baseball fan. That showed that he was never much of a baseball fan. And one of his best friends, who's the historian, um, Taylor Branch, said that uh, he only really had the same sort of knowledge as baseball as most politicians had. So he wasn't particularly a baseball fan, but he was a massive, massive sports fan. But the fact that he wasn't a baseball fan, I think, makes his engagements with the baseball that much more interesting because it shows that they were done with a kind of conscious knowledge of the cultural weight um, that baseball had in American society, even in the 1990s, where many thought because of it, it was sort of overshadowed by the NFL and because it was beset by uh, labour problems that meant there were strikes and such like, that baseball's influence was on the way.
0: There seems to be a certain skill and finesse later on within his presidency about the way that he interacts with baseball and the way that he interacts with people about baseball, which you know c- considering he wasn't a big fan you know having you, know, you only need to watch moneyball to figure out how much statistics there actually is yeah. in baseball
1: uh, let me let me just flip it around a second though to say he wasn't a big fan i think is true but of course he did grow up in the 1950s and if you grew up in the 1950s when baseball was the number one sport more than football you know college basketball was in its, sorry, and basket NBA was in its infancy. I think you have to acknowledge that though he wouldn't have been, you know, a, a, an obsessive fan about baseball, the very fact that he would have grown up listening to baseball commentaries as a child, um, ball by ball um, commentaries of the games, while he was sitting at home in Hot Springs, listening to the St. Louis Cardinals with their games uh, broadcast by KMOX, you know, right across the whole of the, Midwest and South then I think that that did capture him in a way I mean he was captured if you like by the cultural presence of baseball even if it wasn't his number one sport at the time in the same way that that basketball came to be so I so though I don't want to I don't want you to think that he was not a fan it was just that it wasn't his his sporting priority but I think he was well aware of the kind of cultural significance of the sport
0: and and certainly Certainly, if it's what you're growing up with, it's hard not to to be exactly. But you know, you you mentioned something very interesting with him when he answers there about you know labor strikes and baseball having several issues within the sport within the nineties, and in the nineteen ninety four, you see the MLB players, Major League Baseball players, going on strike. Why did Clinton feel the need to get involved in this dispute, and what was the reaction to that involvement?
1: So I think. There are maybe three reasons why he gets involved in the dispute, and let's sort of separate them out. I mean, firstly, there's a very good electoral reason. The 94-95 strike um, threatened to disrupt completely what's known as spring training. Our American listeners obviously will be very familiar with spring training, but for any non-Americans, it's the it's the moment when, Um, all the major league clubs decamp either to Arizona or to Florida into sort of training camps and they play exhibition games. And thousands of fans come down from the chilly north and the midwest down to these uh, training camps in Arizona and Florida to watch their teams uh, play exhibition games uh, and also uh, to sort of take in a bit of sunshine and do all the sort of normal touristy things. And these are hugely important um, economic events for Arizona and Florida, and what do you know? Florida was a swing state even then. Um, you know, Clinton won it by um, less than a point in 1992, and Arizona was a swing state the other way. Um, Bush had won it by less than two points in 1992. So, both of these two states were in danger of losing their spring training because of the of the strike. Uh, And that would potentially have significant electoral impact on Clinton. But also, I think um, there were there was another thing at play, which was that he kind of basically just thought that it was his job as president to protect, um, protect baseball. And I I just want to read you a quote that um, I I was given by. I'll just find it in my book, if that's okay. Read you a quote that that. Um, Mike McCurry who was Clinton's spin doctor from 1994 to 1998 uh, gave me when I was interviewing him about this very subject um, a couple of years ago and he said to me and I quote uh, I asked him about you know why did I asked him the question that you asked me why did Clinton um, intervene and he said I remember thinking to myself this doesn't require spin it's baseball presidents are supposed to do baseball that's what they do it's part of what the deal is if you're president of the united states and then he looked at me and he said people searching from for some other motive in clinton's actions are overthinking well you know as a as someone who's doing research into a book and a phd you know being accused of overthinking is a occupational hazard but i think what he was driving at there was that one of the motivations for Clinton doing it was just that that's what you do if you're president. It's part of the duty of a president. It's part of the, if you like, the civil religious duty of the president to do that. So I think I think that did play a part in what Clinton was thinking about. Then he just thought, I can't have baseball dying on my watch. You know, what would that look like if I was the president and baseball? died on my watch because this strike had led to the cancellation of the World Series. There was no, there was a real danger that spring training wasn't going to happen, that the next, you know, there was no guarantee the next World Series would happen. So so I think, you know, there was a strong element of him just thinking, it's my duty to do it. But also I think there's a a third element of play here, which is relating to the sort of political landscape of the time. Uh, and that's a, in 1994, Clinton is a uniquely unpopular president. Um, by the standards of those days, in actual fact, by current standards, he'd be doing all right. But in those days, a, 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 approval rating always around 40 was had never been seen before for a president. And that's where, where he stood for the first two years of his presidency. So we're talking about 1994 here. So he had a very low approval rating. He had uh, his signature um, political, domestic political plan, healthcare reform, had had gone down the pan. He was being uh, investigated more aggressively for the Whitewater uh, affair, which was about the uh, purchase of real estate uh, on the Whitewater River in Arkansas. And Newt Gingrich, who was then minority, we're talking about before the midterms in 1994, he was the mi- my minority leader um, for the Republicans. He had just issued the Contract for America, um, this whole plan to uh, galvanize America around a conservative agenda. And he claimed that Clinton was um, un American, didn't represent American values. Uh, and uh, Clinton was a threat to American civilization. I mean, a fairly over-the-top sort of stuff. And in fact, arguably, it's sort of the beginning of the sort of over-the-top polarisation we see uh, in American politics now. Um, And the Republican message got through, and the Republicans pretty much swept the board in the midterms in uh, 1994. And... Uh, took control of the Senate and and the House of Representatives, uh, control of both for the first time since 1952. So in the run-up to this and over this period, um, we see uh, Clinton completely um, politically at, at, at a low and not really knowing which direction to turn. His advisors are trying to sort of give him a new voice, a new rhetoric, a new way of communicating um his his pollsters are saying you've got it all wrong he's unhappy with the way he's being presented uh, you know he's being too too left wing and not representing american values the whole the whole situation is sort of needs a political and in particular a rhetorical and communication reset and his advisors come across this idea that if you take some of the metaphors and the symbolism and the ideas and values of baseball then perhaps we could they could use that to reset the way that clinton talks about uh, american community uh, and american values and consensus and compromise and the motivation for, for them doing that is the 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 baseball series ken burns and very very uh, by ken burns Sorry, the motivation for doing that is the baseball series by Ken Burns. Uh, The history of baseball, uh, a follow up, if you like, to his Civil War series from four years earlier, which paints baseball as a metaphor for American history. We've already spoken about that, paints the history of America in the 1920s as being seen through the lens of baseball. And the sort of language that Ken Burns talks in is something that... um, Clinton's communicators think can be transferred to the voice of the president, and so that allows him to talk about the strike in terms of both American values and compromise, which is then what he does.
0: It certainly seems like the the perfect opportunity for for Clinton to recalibrate and, and improve his image, which it kind of it does does kind of help a bit and. Then we have the also the threat of of Cal Ripken Junior.'s possible records throughout that time, possibly being a threat through the lack of games, the the cancellation of games. How is how was Clinton able to to take Cal Ripken Junior. after these strikes and and help his his image and help push through some of his his welfare reforms? Because there's a there's a clear tie together here now of of Clinton and and labour and compromise, as you were saying. So, yes, yeah, so, so Cal Ripkin
1: is the, though Clinton would like to portray himself as the man that saved baseball, of course, he didn't save baseball because Clinton's efforts to end the strike didn't actually work. And the strike was ended in a, you know, by a, um, uh, an agreement in the uh, court in Manhattan, in the federal court in Manhattan. And Clinton's intervention actually didn't work. So I think, We have to remember that because what we're talking about is an intervention that didn't work, but a reset of language and focus that perhaps we then see materializing later. Of course, the person who did, in the eyes of many, save baseball is Cal Ripken Jr. Jr. And because he saved baseball uh, in the sense that he created a heroic narrative that Americans would identify with and then get back to the baseball park to experience Get back to the ballpark to experience. Then Clinton's appropriation of it um, is all part of the same process, if you like. Uh, and the, the reason for Clinton's appropriation of Cal Ripken Jr. is quite quite simple. That Cal Ripken Jr. his record, which is, a, I said right at the beginning, was about consecutive records, consecutive games being played, just turning up for work every day, day in, day out, without missing a day's work for 13 years, tied in perfectly. Clinton's idea ideas about welfare reform, about the virtue of work. The, Ameri- the work ethic is the foremost American virtue in Clinton's eyes. The idea that you turn up to work for an honest day's work was something that was very, very important for his political persona. And it was a key part of his domestic policy because he'd come in uh, in the... Uh, 1992 campaign by saying he had a plan to end welfare as we know it in other words switch america from being a benefits uh, orientated society to a work first society now this is obviously very controversial particularly controversial within his own party because it effectively was a a conservative tool political tool um, you know ending ending benefits dependency but he saw in Cal Ripkin the perfect avatar for his argument that America had to switch from a benefit dependency society to a, a work society. And the guy that turned up for work every day was the symbol that Clinton thought he could use rhetorically uh, as, as part of his argument for welfare reform. Um, welfare reform was having a very tough time, particularly before the 1994 elections when the Democrats controlled both the House and the Senate, um, was, had a very, very difficult time getting consensus on welfare reform through. But he used Cal Ripken Jr. and this pursuit of this record very much as a, a vehicle through which he could make his arguments about the virtues of work for the American people.
0: It seems to be that Clinton's able to to look to baseball as a way of helping him during periods of difficulty, times of difficulty, uh, particularly across, or not particularly, across his presidency. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on the event, but more so the type of pressure that Clinton was under. In 1998, Clinton was obviously in, a, in the middle of a scandal now, how much pressure is Clinton actually under in '98?
1: Well, I think what you have to remember about the scandal involving uh, Clinton and Monica Lewinsky is the fact that it covered so much of that year. I mean, the story broke in late January, and it's a year later where he's still going through the impeachment process uh, as a as a consequence of it, and. Throughout that year, it basically diverted presidential attention and energy from almost any other topic. So in terms of in terms of you know the pressure of being of carrying out presidential duties it was hugely impacted by the fact that he had to spend time with lawyers he had to spend time defending himself he wasn't able to to gather political capital and neither were, the, were his allies because the the conversation was all about this scandal rather than any of the other many things that were going on at the time um he had his initiative on race that he that he was trying to to push forward, but that got completely submerged by the scandal. There were international crises, the financial crises, the collapse of the ruble the world economy looked like it was collapsing american Americans were being bombed in East Africa at the embassies there were There was Osama bin Laden to deal with, and yet. And yet, nothing could get sort of media attention uh, away from the scandal that was encompassing him, all the way from January, where he first, uh, very first said, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, all the way to the impeachment trial in the Senate uh, a year later. The entire thing sort of consumed his presidency. And at some stages, threatened completely to bring it to an end i mean going back to my time as a as a news producer i was a producer for the bbc uh, right at the beginning of the scandal i was flown out from london to uh, to cover the story and i we, we flew out from london and we landed in in washington and we were commissioned to make an hour-long program immediately we got there and i discussed with the anchor at the time, who was a chap called Gavin Esler, an old BBC um, correspondent and presenter who was presenting. And he began the special with the words, there's a smell of death around this presidency. So it shows you the degree to which people thought that actually this was going to bring Clinton down. And that idea that Clinton wasn't going to survive really lasted through much of 1998 and had various moments such as when he gave evidence to the grand jury in august and when the uh, congress released the the tapes of that evidence uh, in september that people thought he can't survive this they genuinely thought there is no way that the scan the, the nature of this scandal not only the sort of sexual details and all that lot that come out, which are of course embarrassing, but the idea that he obstructed justice, that he got people to lie for him, all this sort of stuff. Uh people felt that he couldn't he couldn't possibly survive it. And really it was only when the nineteen ninety eight midterm elections came through and they weren't as good for the Republicans as they'd expected, and Newt Gingrich was eventually forced to resign as a result. Um that really, you got the sense that actually Clinton might survive this scandal. So that degree of pressure was huge right throughout the year.
0: You know that that's a. I think that quote that he gave there from Gavin Esler really is is a lovely quote that kind of sums it all up, uh, and it kind of puts it all into perspective. But on the on the flip side of the coin, uh, American baseball is going and witnessing. This, this competition between Maguire and Sosa. Now, Who were Maguire and Sosa and what competition were they going through at that point?
1: So Mark Maguire and Sammy Sosa. Mark Maguire was the first baseman for the St. Louis Cardinals and Sammy Sosa was an outfielder for the Chicago Cubs. And these two guys were just amazing, big-hitting home run hitters. And what materialised through the 1998 baseball season is that these two uh, guys ended up having this sort of ferocious uh, in terms of sporting contest and epic battle to break the record for the number of home runs scored in a season by a by a baseball player now that record stood at sixty one and had stood um, for thirty seven years had been held by Roger Maris and before Roger Maris. It had been held by Babe Ruth and it was always slightly regarded as the Babe Ruth record. Um, We could go into the sort of the arguments about Roger Maris and the controversy around him, which is sort of rather a fake controversy, really, uh, at some other stage. But anyway, this is an iconic record in American sport. And these two guys are battling it out. One moment, one of them's in the league. They've got to try and hit 62 to beat the record. One moment, one's on 50 and the other's on 51. And then the next moment... They leapfrog and the others ahead. so basically from July onwards this is completely dominating the American media um, to the extent that, um, that Dan Rather on CBS News who's doing the evening news on CBS at the time says I'm not going to do any other story at the top of my show it's always going to be baseball the latest on the baseball home run race is going to be at the top of my show no matter what's going on in the world no matter what's going on in the scandal around Clinton that's going to be what we're going to do, because this story is good for America, and the narrative starts be appearing in the press and even in sort of scholarly commentary everywhere. That somehow that this baseball contest is is a way of diverting attention. America is looking for ways to think about other things apart from the scandal at the top of public life and so if you've got a scandal at the top of public life from the president then why don't we why can't we have this virtual virtuous competition between two great baseball players at public life as well And why can't we think about that instead it's you know it's making up for the sins of the president these two honorable guys are making up for the sins of the president and there was endless comparison between Sosa and Maguire who though they had a fierce competition it was friendly and it was honorable versus um, Clinton versus Kenneth Starr the the prosecutor in the uh, Lewinsky affair who had this mutual amnesty and they hated each other with a passion so you you had these two parallel stories going on together and in some senses they they completely intertwined. So you would get, they would sit next to each other on the front page of newspapers. And in lots of occasions, the newspapers used to sort of refer to each story within the other. The politicians would say, you know, why can't Clinton and Starr be more, more like Maguire and Sosa?" so in the one story, the two, the two dramas of the, of 1998 were sort of playing out in the same space. Um, and Clinton, in a sense tried to capitalise on that, but didn't really succeed.
0: Well you you've just given me a perfect segue to my next question there. How was how was Clinton trying to to use this to help himself? Because we've just seen that it's kind of trying to divert attention away from him and it, it might have harmed him in a way as well.
1: So he sees this going on and he thinks, well I want to be associated with that virtue I want to be associated with the, associated with those American values so he starts telephoning the baseball players quite regularly during September as they reach various milestones He's on the phone to them uh, and doing it and then on the night itself of course he telephones Maguire and tells them America's all you know with you on this and it's absolutely great what you're doing it's absolutely fantastic you're you're a, you're a credit to America and he's hoping that some of this sort of glory around this rubs off off on him and he then goes uh, he then goes on campaign trips and starts talking himself about himself in the same terms as Maguire and Sosa about hitting home runs from America and about never giving up like Maguire and Sosa don't give up. Um, he rather bizarrely he um mm-hmm. manual, the White House manufactures a, a photo opportunity uh, on the campaign trail between him and the guy that catches the ball, the million-dollar ball that Maguire hits the 62nd home run with is caught by a guy called uh, Tim Fonaris, who was a, 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 a ground, groundsman at the uh, Busch Stadium in St. Louis. And this guy's flown to Florida for a photo opportunity at Orlando Airport with Clinton. I mean, he's forever trying to associate himself with Maguire and Sosa, forever trying to to bask in their reflected glory. Um, He invites Sosa along to uh, the White House to open the, sorry, to light the National Christmas Tree. Um, He invites Sosa to the State of the Union address at the beginning of 1999, which is held during his trial for impeachment. First time a professional baseball player has been honoured as a uh, at a State of the Union address, and Clinton points him out and gets um, Sosa to take a standing ovation. So there's all this stuff that goes on that Clinton is trying to get some personal redemption for um, by associating himself with the with the baseball players. But by and large, the media's not having it.
0: Now, and you can see why he's trying to do it, but you can certainly see why they're not having it at the same time
1: and they're saying they're saying you know how dare you associate with these yourself with these two virtuous guys when you know when you're such a uh, you know uh, an example of everything that's bad about america at the moment and they're they're great they're great and they're virtuous and they're honorable and you've let down your family you've let down your country you've lied throughout the the summer so i think you know I, i I think, though he tried to do it, most of the media narrative was taking his, his attempt to at do it and going, oh, "No, we're not really having that. It doesn't really, it doesn't really fit with the way that we see it." But of course, the other sort of element to that is though Clinton was lying about his uh, affair from all the way from January all the way through to finally admitting. Um, sexual relations with Lewinsky in August, the baseball players were lying as well. And that's another area where the two stories merge with each other because both the baseball players and Clinton had a culture of concealment. Clinton was a concealment about his affair and and what sort of person he was. And the baseball players was concealing the fact that they were souping themselves up on steroids.
0: And what was the reaction to that that performance-enhancing drug scandal where Maguire and Sosa are tied up in?
1: Uh, well, uh, Sosa isn't really tied up in it at all during 1998 in the sense that that he wasn't part of a discussion. In fact, he was seen as somebody who who was drug-free completely at the time, comes to be questioned later. The problem for Mark Maguire is that uh, a reporter in August spotted a, a bottle of uh pills called andro in his uh in his locker after one game uh, and it turned out that this was a steroid precursor not a not a steroid itself but a steroid precursor that was not banned in baseball because baseball didn't have any drug testing then but was banned in the NFL it was banned in college sports and it was banned in the olympics and it was a precursor that allowed you as most steroids do, to train a little harder and recover more quickly. And Maguire was challenged about this in August, at the height of the home run race. And for a few days it became a bit of an issue because people thought hey, you shouldn't even though it's not illegal in baseball, you shouldn't be um taking these drugs. McGuire was def- Maguire was defiant about it. He said, It's not illegal. There's no reason why I shouldn't take it. You can't ban this sort of stuff. You could can- all sorts of things that you know supplements that we take that that aren't, that aren't and i'm perfectly happy to do it and basically what happened is that no one really spotted that this was a sign that there was a bigger problem about steroids going on in baseball there were more home runs being hit than ever before the bodies were huge the numbers were eye-popping and Here was evidence of someone taking a steroid precursor and everybody said, but actually it's okay. It really isn't doing anything. And after about three or four days of sort of press coverage, which was a little lukewarm towards Maguire, basically, I think the impulse came to play that America didn't want its heroic story that had been the antidote to the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal to contaminate their summer they didn't want two scandals at the pinnacle of public life, so they decided oh well we'll just ignore the uh, the potential for a steroid scandal in baseball uh, and so it was, and, and Maguire got record record crowds wherever he went after a few days the the issue of Andrew basically disappeared from the conversation and didn't resurface again. Uh, until the early noughties, when baseball players started going public about the degree of um, steroid taking there had been during the 1990s. And eventually, and we're talking about, you know, not 10 years later, uh, Maguire is forced to admit it. And incidentally, Sosa has never admitted it, though there are reports that he's. Um, tested positive for drugs in his time. So what we had were two parallel um, cultures of concealment going on in 1998. In the two dramas that were totally intertwined during 1998, the Lewinsky-Clinton scandal and the home run race, both of them were built on a lie, really.
0: It's interesting to see how baseball was able to keep that clean image for that time during that scandal, just to save themselves whilst the president is is struggling to save himself it's very interesting to see that that happening at the same time now we've had a great conversation about bill clinton and and baseball and, and how the two intersect in the 1990s but i have a final fun question for you chris as we do for all the guests here on the history of Jackson podcast now you've obviously written a book about baseball and i want to ask you what is your favorite baseball team and why
1: so it's quite easy it's the red sox um I started watching baseball regularly, probably about 30 years ago, but it was really the Red Sox and the fact that they had such a I'm um, not going to say pathetic story, but the story of the curse of the Red Sox, they hadn't won the World Series since Babe Ruth had left them in 1919, they hadn't won the World Series. And it was known as the curse of the Bambino, that they come close several times. They had some great players over the years. But for, for the best part of 90 years, they hadn't won uh, a World Series. And then suddenly in 2004... Uh, they won the World Series. And I started really getting interested in just before that and thinking, well, one day maybe the curse will be broken. And lo and behold, it was broken in 2004 in Spectacular style a fantastic World Series, which I got completely gripped by. Uh, And so then I suddenly found that rather weirdly, if you're going to support an American baseball team, the only real place you can do it from the UK is on the East Coast because on the East Coast, uh, the time difference isn't so bad, so afternoon games start at quite a good time if you can catch them on telly. And evening, even evening games, you know, maybe you might catch a bit of the early innings that start at midnight. And even better, on occasions, you can nip out if you've got, you can find yourself a treat flight. You can nip out for a weekend, see a three-game series at Fenway, and get home again and have your baseball hit um for the season. So yeah, can't really do that in Los Angeles or anything else. Had to be an East Coast team, couldn't be the Yankees. No one likes the Yankees. Uh,
0: I think that's a great team to there to support there. I think that's and I think that's a great answer as well. So thank you very much for that. Now obviously people listen to to us talk about your book and we've not touched on everything we planned on touching on today or even the rest of your book, which is fascinating. How can people Grab a copy of your new book, Chris.
1: So you can get it. It's currently available on Amazon, as you'd expect. Um, Usual places, Bill Clinton at the Church of Baseball by Chris Burkett on Amazon, or you can get it direct from the publishers, Mercer University Press uh, in the United States. It's published in the United States, so delivery to the UK and Europe takes a bit longer than your usual Amazon sort of overnight timeframe. But if you're in America, you can get it pretty quickly. Um, Yeah, so get along and get yourself a copy as soon as you can that's what i'd say
0: and i'd make sure a link for that is in the description below so people can find that really easily and then how can they find you and interact with you online
1: so i uh, i have a presence on uh i was going to say twitter but i should say x shouldn't i, I have a presence on x uh, at i never mention it it's a long story why that's my handle but at i never mention it is my handle on on X, uh, I post uh, quite regularly on LinkedIn. I find that's quite a good place for me to sort of talk to people and get reaction to whatever, what I'm doing. And I occasionally blog for the British Library, bl.org.uk, uh, on Baseball Matters, uh, in their Eccles Centre blog. The Eccles Centre for American Studies at the British Library uh, is the sort of British Library uh, bit for North America. Uh, and I blog there about baseball issues and stuff like that. So you can catch me there.
0: I certainly recommend following you on, on LinkedIn. Uh, you know, you've put out some really great content there and and, and listening, uh, looking at how your book has developed since we first connected on that has been brilliant. So I recommend going following Chris.
1: Great. Thanks very much,
0: Jackson. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, Chris. I really appreciate it.
1: It's been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you very much for inviting me and
0: uh, wish you all success with your future podcasts. They're great. Oh, thank you. So that was Chris Burkett talking all about his brand new book with Mercer University Press Bill Clinton at the Church of Baseball, the presidency, civil religion, and the national pastime in the 1990s. Now, I'm sure we can agree that podcast was really interesting. It was really interesting to hear about America and Clinton's struggles during the 90s through the prism of baseball, but also looking at baseball's issues within that decade through Clinton and America. Now, if you guys enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that we have made here so far at History of Jackson, please do consider supporting us through the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below or by supporting us through History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we have another awesome episode coming up, which I know you're all going to enjoy, so keep your ears ears peeled for that one. Until
1: next week.